Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 208. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Welcome to the MCAT podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. As always, I'm joined by a member of the Blueprint MCAT test prep team. This week again, joined by Armin from the new Blueprint MCAT live online course. He's one of the instructors over there. Go check that out at blueprintprep.com. Today, we're continuing our breakdown of full length one. We're doing BioBioChem Passage One. Armin, back for some more MCAT podcasts. This week, or last week, was our last Cars passage. Thank the Lord. Uh, we are now on to BioBioChem, which some people will have shivers thinking about that. Um, in uh, On test day, BioBioChem comes after lunch. Mindset-wise, what do you recommend students do when it comes to finishing one section, especially from cars to bio biochem, because there's a much longer break than just a, a quick minute, uh, like quick 10 minute stand up and stretch kind of break. Yeah. So definitely don't eat a heavy lunch, right? So you don't want to be, you know, out there chowing something heavy and then coming in and then you just go into that like food, <laughs> food coma. coma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you do not want that. Um, yeah. What are some ways to, you know, what I would recommend is have a light l- lunch as you're going into your lunch section. Um, stay mentally engaged. Um, it is it is good to be mindful and make sure to give yourself that a few minutes of mindful meditation where you just close your eyes, focus on your breathing, just don't think about anything and just be still and just be, feel like the clothes on you, on you feel your shoes, your feet on the ground, right? Take time to walk around. Uh, drink water, but not enough where you have to get up in the middle of the section <laughs> and could use the restroom. But it's it's definitely a time where, you know, I, I would recommend having a light lunch. Um, I personally, during my, my little break, I, I drink a monster. I would, may not recommend that for you guys if you don't normally, you know, drink caffeine like Ryan. Uh, <laughs> but I'm addicted to caffeine and I needed that extra boost to keep going. But I think that's uh, a key thing is like, don't do anything 
different on test day than you wouldn't normally do. Oh, absolutely. So I figured out that right next to my test setting center was a Jimmy John's. Mm -hmm. And um, actually for a whole month prior to the MCAT, I would take practice exams exactly as I would. And I would take my breaks exactly as I would. And uh, I would have a Jimmy John's number 12 every single day for a whole <laughs> month straight. So I, I knew on test day that, you know, this is it. I've done this for the past month. So there's no difference here. Um, I would recommend, uh, you know, wearing the same things you would wear, you know, sweatpants or a sweatshirt, right? Being comfortable. Um, nothing new on test day. This is something that you just have to practice over and over again so that this last month until your exam, you're just very robotic. And you know exactly like after this break, I'm going to use the restroom. After this break, I'm going to have a cookie. After this break, I'm going to have my lunch, but I'm also going to do some stretches. I know that this is the hardest time for me. So I'm going to combat that by, you know, taking additional, you know, uh, uh, if it's a mindful meditation break, or if it's, uh, you know, focusing on my breathing, just knowing yourself in these next seven hours and being very robotic. All right. So let's jump in to our bio biochem, uh, passage right now. And again, as a reminder, we're, we're going through blueprint prep full length one, we have just finished the cars section, so we're jumping into bio biochem, which is the next section section that comes on the MCAT. Uh, obviously, we're going from critical reading and analysis to another science-based passage. Any kind of mindset shift on on how to get back into the science mindset? Yeah, so um, I would have to say practice. Um, you know, think about some of your favorite science phenomena. Uh, for me, uh, like for one, something that comes to mind associated with this passage is going to be like the nervous system, right? So get yourself primed. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to be probably talking about action potentials and sodium channels opening and an influx and causing, you know, potassium channels you know, opening and an efflux and talking, you know, thinking a little bit about the, that you have to bring in outside information now. And previously it was just everything was contained within the passage. We're really going to ask ourselves questions to say within the boundaries of the passage. But now it's like all MCAT books are fair game. And um, now we really get to apply our sciences here. So, so getting yourself kind of ready for that um, mentality of, of getting yourself primed. All righty. Let's go ahead and jump in to passage one here. Sounds good. So transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, of the motor cortex uses a powerful focused magnetic field to depolarize brain neurons and elicit motor evoked potentials, MEPs, from the skeletal muscle. An MEP may be defined as a recording of the electrical muscular response elicited by artificially stimulating the motor cortex, which can cause muscle movement as well. A lot of words in there, but basically saying that we have TMS stimulations when we use the motor cortex, right? Some type of magnetic field to cause brain neurons to evoke potentials, which travel to the mu skeletal muscle, right? Nothing new that we, is, is any new information. This is all prior knowledge here. So we can think about like a muscular movement or muscle contraction, specifically with, with um, uh, action potentials. MEPs are powerful as a method for assessing the integrity of the central to peripheral nervous system path. MEP amplitude is taken as an indicator of cortical motor excitability. 
So what do you think is kind of important in here? Um, I think we are learning about kind of the, the inner workings of TMS. Yeah, agreed. So I'd probably highlight TMS, T- depolarizing neurons, um, MEPs, and the last sentence was pretty um, interesting. Uh, MEP amplitude is taken as an indicator of cortical motor excitability. Okay, just keep that in mind. We definitely want to be be careful to not highlight a lot of things, but you know we want to avoid HHD, what I like to call hyper highlighting disorder. <laughs> I love I love the meme of like the person <laughs> with the paintbrush just painting everything. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that, right? Everything no. yellow is not going to help us. Yep. All right. So pathological conditions that affect the efferent and afferent paths are varied. All right. For example, spinal cord injuries may result in severing of a section of the spinal cord that relays impulses to the muscle. In Parkinson's disease, dopaminergic cells in the cells in the brain die and motor movement becomes slow, shaking, and increasingly difficult. TMS can be used to differentiate if the communication problem is the brain or in the periphery. In this paragraph, we didn't really introduce a lot of new ideas. As an MCAT student, you're familiar with efferent and afferent paths, you know, going out of the brain, coming back to the brain. We're familiar with a pathology of Parkinson's, specifically with the lack of dopamine. Um, if anything, the only important thing would be that TMS, differentiate communication problem in brain or the periphery. The Next thing that we see here is a figure. And whenever we approach figures, graphs, you know, all that good stuff, memes on the MCAT, the only <laughs> thing that we want to focus on is answering one question. And that question is, why did the author waste their life putting this here? What was the, what was the point? So I normally start off by reading the figure description. And then I look at any of the axes, the legend, the axes, the titles, and whatnot. So Ryan, taking a look at this figure, what, what do you think is the purpose? What what is the purpose of this figure? Um, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading the caption. The, the effect of six different motor protocols on MEP amplitude. Uh, the subject was moving during the test for DYN, so dynamic, uh, static STA. The subject's hand remained at rest during the test. Um, and so when I'm looking at it, okay, so I see um, AO is... I don't know what AO, please. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to take a note, mental note of that. We yeah. haven't been introduced to AO or MI yet. Yeah. So we're not introduced to AO or MI yet, but the, the first part here, I, I recognize that each one is dynamic and static, mm-hmm. uh, dynamic, static, dynamic, static for each one. And then one of them is combining AO and MI. One of them is just AO. One of them is just MI. So I'll be interested to see what those mean, but I can see that there is a little bit of a difference, uh, a decrease in that amplitude each time when it's static versus dynamic. 
Yeah, pretty, very good observations. And I agree with you. These are definitely things to keep in mind. We don't want to spend any more time more than this, you know, breaking out, breaking down this figure. Uh, We'll come back to it as needed, but this definitely, when the questions ask us, but this definitely tells us a little bit about MEP amplitude in the context of static or dynamic, and then they introduce AO or MI. And we're going to keep that in mind that we should probably, maybe if we learn more, maybe if not, we're going to keep AO and MI as a question mark for now. So the next paragraph, or in the last paragraph, um, says a TMS experiment, bingo, like bells should be going off here. Whenever you heard experiments, you know, uh, research is investigated, we want to hone in because these are question heavy areas. So a TMS experiment was conducted to test the excitatory effects of motor imagery MI and action observation in the first dorsal interosseous FDI, the, the motor responsible for flexing or closing the index finger when making a fist. So this is pretty important. For experiments, we always want to focus on what was the purpose of the experiment. Well, there was a TMX experiment that wanted to test the excitatory effects of motor imagery or MI. There's our MI and action observation, AO, of whenever we close the index finger. Interesting. So we're going to look at uh, motor imagery and AO um, when closing the index finger. Five healthy subjects were asked to perform three pairs of motor protocols, each comprised of 20 trials over five minutes. Interesting. A lot of methods. There are a million ways to do an experiment. We're going to make a mental note of where the methods are, and then we're going to just keep moving forward. In the first protocol, the subject observed a video, AO, action observation, of a stranger opening and closing the fist. Okay, so in the first one, whenever it says AO, I'm observing a video of somebody else closing their fist. Interesting. The ne- next, the subject was asked to imagine opening and closing his or her own fist. Am I? All right, so we have two groups so far, one in which you observe somebody else closing, your own f- uh, closing their fist, and then you imagine closing your own fist. Each protocol was performed once with the subject's own hand at rest and separately with the subject actively opening and closing his slash her hand. Okay, so uh, we did it when the hand was still and one when the hand was moving. During each protocol in 10 of the 20 trials, MEPs were elicited from the FDI. The group results are shown in figure one. So what did then, now we could go back and add more to figure one. And figure one, what is this specifically telling us then? It is showing us the amplitude of, of what they were doing in this trial of, of observing uh, or imagining the, the movements. And then yeah. if they were actually moving the hems, their hands themselves. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Whether we observe somebody else closing their hand, we imagining us closing our hand and then us actually and then in the context of actually, you know, moving our hand and and being static. So pretty interesting. Whenever we approach experiments, we want to focus on the purpose of the experiment, independent, dependent variables. What are we measuring? What's changing? And then any results. And figure one is definitely our results here. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the tricky ones that for me, I'm like, oh my Lord, what what have we gotten ourselves into? Do I understand before? I don't even understand what's going on before we even uh, jump into this. So remember, we just have to have a good understanding of the experiment. So Ryan, if you could just sum up the experiment for me, um, what was the main point of the experiment? What did they do? 
the experiment is just measuring amplitudes based on these two different variables of, of or actually multiple variables of, of watching or imagining uh, hand movement and, and moving their hands themselves. So we're, yeah. we're testing this. Uh, although I was going to try to bring you back to TMS, but this has nothing to do with TMS. This is, although it is a TMS experiment. So, yeah, it's definitely a TMS experiment that we're measuring amplitudes, but pretty much. Yeah. That's, that's, I would say you're exactly where you need to be when you finish reading this passage. Yeah. And, and in that last paragraph, I'd probably highlight the, our variables. Yeah. Excitatory the, effects. The, the thing I was confused on why I was like, well, it's not a TMS experiment because in, in TMS, I, I'm assuming TMS is like I'm using the magnets to actually move my hand and where this is just measuring what we can measure at those spots. Interesting. I agree. I agree. This stuff. This is definitely a good observation uh, to be having, and it's it's something to to have a question mark in, and and we can refer back to the passages needed to further clarify if the questions asked for it. Yep. Okay. All right. So let's move on to the question. So which sequence properly indicates the transmission path of impulses as a direct result of transcranial magnetic stimulation? So what is this question asking us? Which sequence properly indicates the transmission path of impulses as a direct result of transcranial? All right, so this is like a pseudo-discrete, as we like to call them, I think. This is basically asking, what's the pathway of a, a movement to happen? Yep, a pathway for movement to happen. And, yeah. Go ahead. So answer choice A, sensory neurons, cerebral cortex, afferent neurons, skeletal muscle cells, uh, B, skeletal muscle cells, afferent neurons, spinal cord, cerebral cortex, C, cerebral cortex, spinal cord, efferent neurons, skeletal muscle cells, D, efferent neurons, afferent neurons, interneurons, cerebral cortex. <laughs> um, and so again, the transmission path as a result of TMS, right? And we know based on the kind of discussion of what TMS is, is um, it's of the motor cortex depolarizing brain neurons to elicit uh, MEPs by the skeletal muscle. So we know it's coming from the motor, motor cortex to the skeletal muscle. And just based on that, answer choice C is the only one that goes in that path. Correct. Absolutely. I, I love what you did. You went back, you, you know, figured out what TMS was, use a prediction. We're going from the brain to the skeletal muscle. So we're starting at the brain and everything in between down to the uh, first dorsal interosseous, and in this example, of what will cause a muscle contraction. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Question two. L-DOPA is a common medication administered to treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. What is the likely mechanism of L-DOPA? All right, so now I'm frustrated because I'm like, why did I just read all of this stuff <laughs> in the passage and all of your questions have nothing to do with the passage? Um, but this is what happens. This is, this is the MCAT. So in this, I would, uh, I would approach this with a, with a, pro, uh, with, with a prediction mentality. Yep. So what, what's wrong in Parkinson's? 
So they do tell us, they say in Parkinson's disease, dopaminergic cells die and motor movements become slow, shaking, and increasingly difficult. So dopaminergic to me means there's something going on with dopamine. <laughs> what, what, do I have less dopamine, too much dopamine? What's going on? Um, Absolutely. So, so when dopaminergic cells die, what's happening to the dopamine levels? They're going down. Exactly. So how are we going to treat Parkinson's. We got to get it back up. Cool. So L-DOPA is used to treat Parkinson's. So what do you think L-DOPA does? It increases dopamine. That is your prediction. <laughs> yep. That is my prediction. So answer choice A, L-DOPA increases dopamine concentration. All right, done. Uh, <laughs> but let me let me read the rest just to make sure. So L-DOPA decreases dopamine concentration. That's definitely not what we think the hypothesis is there. Uh, C, L-DOPA breaks down the blood-brain barrier. We definitely don't want anything breaking down our blood-brain barrier. Uh, and then L-DOPA converts glucose to dopamine. That just doesn't make sense um, in the grand scheme of things. So answer choice A seems to be the most likely. Yep, absolutely. So that is right on with your prediction. Pick it. If you make a prediction, you see it in the answer choices, pick it and move on. Don't even look at the other answer choices. Yeah, you, you like that? Yeah, absolutely. Very rarely have I ever seen a student make a prediction and it's wrong and yeah. then go into the answer choices and that wrong prediction is there. Very rarely does that happen. So if you make a prediction and you look at the answer choices and it's there, that's the answer. Pick it and move on. Okay. Yeah. It'd be hard to go. Okay. Uh, dopamine has this, it, their Parkinson's is this, I think L-DOPA, my assumption is that it, it has to do with the blood brain barrier somehow, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. how would you get to that point? I don't know. Yeah. Absolutely. One, 100%. Yeah. So, so this is one of the techniques of, you know, a, a very efficient test taker, but, you know, read a question, rephrase it, predict what the correct answer is, look at the answer choices, match it, click it and move on. Don't even consider the remainders. Yeah. And that's how you save on time. All righty. Love it. All right. Let's go on to question number three. So, um, which of the following processes is involved in the motor evoked potentials elicited by TMS? So this is an interesting question because it's a Roman numeral question. And there's a particular strategy on how to approach this Roman numeral tricks, uh, this, these questions. The first way that you want to approach is you want to look at the answer choices and find the Roman numeral that pops up the most. So which Roman numeral here pops up the most? Uh, two. And that's the first one that we're going to uh, evaluate uh, because two pops up three times. And if it's two is wrong, we know the answer. Move on. <laughs> so the, the question is asking us, what is involved in MEPs elicited by transcranial magnetic stimulation? So motor evoked potentials, uh, ev uh, you know, elicited by TMS. So number two, calcium release. Do we have calcium release whenever we have a motor evoked uh, potential. Uh, if I remember correctly, I believe we do, but it's been a long time since my, my, uh, physiology days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Remember, uh, skeletal muscle contraction, uh, is caused by the release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum and calcium binding to, to tripo, tropomyosin to, troponin to remove tropomyosin out of the way uh, uh, helps the contraction uh, uh, to occur. So calcium release is true. So uh, we can definitely cross out answer choice A. Yeah. Now, the 
we have to either look at one or three. Which one do you want to look at next? Um, so if I were to still use that same trick of what, what is the next thing that happens most? Uh, answer choice one is the one that happens next most. So, so remember, we crossed out A, so we're only between B, C, and D now because uh, two is true. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, two is true. So I don't know, either one or three. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just start with one. Uh, whenever we have a motor evoked potential, uh, do we have an sodium influx? Uh, again, I believe so. <laughs> yeah. In, in your the sodium potassium potential, potential action potentials. Yes, absolutely. We have a sodium uh, um, uh, influx due to voltage gated uh, sodium channels opening, allowing for the sodium from the extracellular space to be rushed into the intracellular space. And that causes a depolarization. And that uh, sodium influx is a true statement. So here we've determined that two is true, one is true. We know the correct answer because there's no way that one and two and three could be true because no there's no answer choice allowing that so here the answer is d and we click it and move on um and by the way it's, uh, there's no uh, a chloride efflux it's a potassium efflux yep as i just talked about calcium <laughs> calcium and so or, uh, potassium and sodium gotta love those channels there those little pumps all right um question four would the leg muscles of a patient paralyzed due to spinal cord transection be expected to exhibit MEPs? All right, so what is the question asking? The question is asking, okay, we know what MEPs are, these motor-evoked potentials. Um, would the leg muscles of someone who's paralyzed exhibit them? So... <sighs> Uh, this is a hard one for me to answer because so if, if I, I have a spinal cord injury, then my brain cannot send a signal down to my, my leg muscles, um, mm -hmm. to have the, those motor evoked potentials. Although, um, Okay. So that's that's that, right? If I yep. have a spinal cord injury. But I know that we have other reflexes and arcs that don't evolve the brain where I could potentially invoke a motor evoked potential where I don't need my brain to do that. So I'm going to be a little confused on this one. And maybe I'm bringing too much outside knowledge and I don't know, but <laughs> you, you, you definitely are thinking along the same, along the correct path. So you're on the right path and that's, that's definitely very good. Okay. I do want to hone you in onto one particular area and that's a spinal cord transection. Yeah. So the complete severing of the, tran uh, of the spinal cord. Yeah. I got you. But if, if my spinal cord is transected at, wherever it's transected there there are still reflex arcs that don't involve the brain so i i don't know maybe again i'm going I'm going too far here yes dr gray you're correct <laughs> you're correct right, right? depending We've, on the level of the transection whether you're in the lumbar thoracic yeah. part and where that reflexes yeah. are we've we've all seen the videos of of people who are definitely uh paraplegics or quadriplegics because of a transection on a treadmill walking because of that reflex arc 
triggering the the movement to happen. So, um, yeah, so maybe this question needs to be thrown out. But anyway, so answer choice A, no, because the motor cortex is damaged. Well, the motor cortex isn't damaged. The the spinal cord is damaged. So uh, I'll throw that one out. B, no, because a muscle response requires an intact pathway. Um, And so uh, this one is interesting because i agree with part of it but not the other part of it uh answer choice c yes if the stimulation intensity can be made sufficiently high uh no right it's transected it's it's not going to be fixed right with the technology that we have now um transection is is uh means no no uh no pathway there uh, D, yes, because the motor cortex is intact. Again, I don't agree with that. So the answer choice here is B, but I, I definitely don't agree with it um, based on how our nervous system is set up with our reflex yeah. arcs. Yeah, we definitely have to incorporate <laughs> more about reflex arcs in here, but uh, I, I agree with you. The The answer is definitely B because of the lack of communication from the motor cortex to the um, to the skeletal muscle. Yeah. All right. So okay. we'll, we'll, we'll have to flag a complaint with a blueprint uh, for that one. <laughs> I like that one. I yeah. like that. So let's go on to question number five. So the student in charge of the experiment wishes to present his hair findings in support of the theory that motor imagery and action observation together facilitate a greater increase in motor excitability than either protocol alone. Which of the following would be the best reason to withhold this presentation? So this is a little bit of a wordy one. So we definitely want to revise this into our own words to make it more simple. So how would you rephrase this? Um, I'm still thinking about the MEPs from the last one. I, I think <laughs> I want to go back to it. I think the only reason uh, this one it, there isn't an issue is because MEPs are specific to brain to motor muscle response and so um it's it's ignoring these reflex arcs because we're specifically talking about um meps if it if it talked about action potentials at the muscle specifically not meps then yeah so anyway i don't want to confuse people but so our meps do we not have uh reflexes don't have like tonic clonic reflexes are those not MEPs? I don't know. I just did a quick Google search on it. Like, what is the specific definition of an MEP? And it looks like it is specifically the brain causing spinal cord and peripheral muscles to do things. Okay. Okay. I see. I see. So any reflexes or any of that does not include MEPs? Correct. Those are, you can get action potentials, right? Because we're measuring the action potentials, the electricity happening at the motor unit specifically, but those are not MEPs, right? So these motor evoked potentials. So that's, that's the confusing part. Motor evoked in my mind is motor cortex caused potentials. Okay. So interesting, a very, very specific nuance of an MEP, which is kind of throws out my reflex arc (laughs) argument but anyway uh fun little side discussion uh don't email me (laughs) Um, so so question five going back to this question um so the student 
in charge of the experiment wishes to present his or her findings in support of the theory that motor imagery and action observation together facilitate greater increase in motor excitability than either protocol alone. Um, which of the following would be best reason to withhold this presentation? All right, so they, <clears throat> the question here asking what potentially would cause this student to not want to discuss this, which is what we found in figure one, the combination together seems like a bigger, uh, a bigger um, amplitude here. Agreed. Um, so what would cause that to not potentially be true or cause that maybe to be a false finding? So we'll see. So answer choice A the procedure used did not include MEP recordings prior to each task. Um, I don't know if that would make a difference. Answer choice B, MEP amplitudes in an individual are typically highly consistent. So that would not go against anything. So I'm going to throw mm -hmm. answer choice B out. Answer choice C, the motor tasks performed in the experiment were too simple. Uh, again, I don't know if that would throw out these results. D, the six different conditions were run in random order. Um, so Potentially, that may be a thing because we're not standardizing the actual experiment. Uh, and, and so this is more of a question of experiment protocol and, <laughs> than anything else. Um, so the randomness to me is a concern. I don't know the MEP recordings prior to each task, maybe as a control, maybe because we don't have a control. Mm -hmm. I don't know. A and D are, are I like them both. Yeah, definitely. So by randomizing within an experiment, what do we, uh, what's, what's the benefit of randomizing? Um, I don't know. We're, we're getting rid of, of um, like being prepared for getting better at a task. Okay. So we're removing confounding variables. Okay. Would you would you agree? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Are we removing or adding? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not thinking about in general. I'm thinking about this specific experiment. I'm, so uh, imagine a muscle that's continuously contracting or being imagined to contract or staying steady. You know, these muscles eventually develop muscle memory. Yeah. Right. So if we mix things up, we're able to evoke potentials and measure these MEPs specifically at what it was designed to and not because of repetition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if we, if we, you were on the right track for A, so what's, you know, a way that you, you, you went about and is mentioned controls. Do we have any controls? No. No. Right. In order for us to make a definitive conclusion, we need something to compare it against. Yep. We need a baseline. Yep. I agree. Yeah. So answer choice A. A is the correct answer. Yep. I yeah. agree. Right. Pretty, pretty good passage. That was definitely a, um, a trickier one. And this is where 
like I love cars because the questions are the passage. The passage are the questions for, for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to the science-based passages, I'm like, this has nothing to do with the passage at all. This is just, you're testing my knowledge or you're testing this other random thing about experiment design or, uh, and, and so it's just, uh, it, it, it's confusing and frustrating to spend so much time on trying to learn the passage and understand the passage and then be asked questions that had nothing to do with the passage, which is why you get a lot of these um, kind of tips and tricks and shortcuts to doing well in the MCAT is don't read the passage, go to the questions. (laughs) Yeah, I would, I would, I would refrain against that. Oh, I agree. I I agree. But that's where they come from, right? Yeah, I, I think the way that you should approach the passage in the sciences is, why is the author mentioning this? If they provide any type of background information, that's just background information. Don't spend too much time, you know, uh, highlighting that or too much time on that. We talked about muscle movement and specifically the, how the motor cortex causes action potentials. We know that. We don't need time you know, highlighting that. Um, What we really do want to focus on is experiments. As soon as we approach an experiment, be able to identify three major things. And that's the purpose of the experiment and or the hypothesis. Give me the independent or dependent variables and dependent variables. So what's, what, what are the researchers changing? What are the researchers measuring? And then lastly, results, if any. If every experiment you're able to identify those three pieces on your first pass, you should be doing good. And and again, we're not going to spend too much time breaking down the experiments in the passage. Just get a brief idea what what the experiment did. What's the purpose of these particular figures? We'll jump into the questions, and if the questions require it, we'll come back and we'll we'll hone in on that particular area. All right, so there you have it. Another passage for you. This time, jumping into the bio biochem world doing a little bit of neurology for our section today. Again, go check out blueprintprep.com. Their new live online course just launched. Go check it out. Again, blueprintprep.com. And you can use the code JAN400. That's JAN400, J-A-N, for $400 off and get the lowest price of the year. Again, that's blueprintprep.com. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT Podcast. This is MedEd Media.